bright yellow sun loomed high above the road as Constable Gary Solotke cruised west down Trans-Canada Highway 1, about half a mile from Canada's Falcon Beach in southeast Manitoba. Saturday, May 20th, 1967, had been a busy one, with large numbers flocking to the popular recreational spot located on the shores of Falcon Lake to celebrate the first day of the long Victoria weekend. Things had calmed down somewhat by the afternoon as Solotke headed out for a routine patrol along the highway. With the time approaching 3pm, he was distracted by the sight of a man walking stiffly along the south shoulder, carrying a briefcase in one hand and clutching his stomach with the other. As Solotke's car drew closer, the man looked up suddenly and waved frantically toward the officer. After a quick U-turn, Solotke brought the car to rest about 10 feet from the man, who looked to be about 50, and was dressed in light-coloured trousers with a brown jacket and a grey cap on his head. As the man stared intensely at Solotke through the windscreen, seeming a little unsteady on his feet, only then did Solotke realise that the man's chest was completely bare underneath his jacket, with what appeared to be streaks of charcoal smeared across it. Solotke put on his hat and stepped from the vehicle. Stay away from me, said the man suddenly, holding a hand out toward the officer. Is everything okay, sir? asked Solotke, taking a step closer. He could see the man's eyes were red, his stomach and chest were too, as though he'd been out under the sun all day. He was also clearly inebriated, thought the officer. I mean it said the man. Don't come any closer. Why not? said Solotke. Because I've just seen two spaceships and I'm afraid you might get radiation poison from me, said the man, without missing a beat. Solotke did his best to stifle a laugh, then realised the man wasn't joking. The officer looked toward the low line of trees bordering the highway to the north and toward the endless, empty sky above them, as one car after another swept past. When Solotke asked the man for some ID, he padded his pockets, then held up a finger as if suddenly remembering something. He popped the latches on his briefcase, then took out a sheet of paper from inside it, and held it out in front of him as far as he could reach, without stepping any closer to the officer, then motioned for Solotke to take it. Solotke rolled his eyes, then grabbed it from the man, who then shuffled back a few paces. Solotke scanned the document. Well, Mr. McCarlack, do you mind telling me what you've been doing out here this afternoon? McCarlack, or Stefan McCarlack, to give him his full name, winced in pain then hesitated for a moment, as if unsure about what he was about to say next. Then finally, he began to talk. He'd spent the morning roughly two miles away to the north, out in the brush of the surrounding area, known as Whiteshell Provincial Park, prospecting on a claim he'd been working for a good few months. Things had been going well, when out of nowhere, he spotted two glowing red lights, approaching from a distance. A 
As the lights drew closer, he realized they were in fact aircraft, only they looked nothing like anything he'd ever seen before. Both were saucer-shaped, about 36 feet wide, with a dome at the top. When the objects got to within 150 meters of where he was, one of them descended from the sky and landed on a small shelf of rock not 30 meters from where he was standing. Assuming they were some kind of military vehicle, he approached the craft and even touched it, only for it to suddenly become searingly hot as it began to take off again. Then a blast of hot air had shot out of it, knocking Mikhailak over and tearing his shirt off, damaging his hat and undershirt too. Moments later, the craft rose up into the sky and along with the second vehicle, shot off at tremendous speed and then disappeared into a cloud. He showed Solotki where he'd been struck by the hot air, pulling his jacket open to reveal a strange grid-like pattern of what looked like small circular burns on his stomach in a 5x4 rectangular pattern. Solotki then saw also that the black stuff smeared over them was some kind of ash. Then Mikhailak showed him the back of his cap, which had also been burned, and said that he'd put the damaged undershirt in his briefcase. But when Slotki asked to look at it, Mikhailak refused, worried that it might somehow poison him if he got too close to it. After making a drawing of the objects for Slotki to take back to his superiors, Mikhailak declined the offer of a lift back to Falcon Beach, where he was staying in a nearby hotel, then thanked the officer for his help and set off on his way again. Solotki returned to his car, where he sat for a moment, watching the strange man as he ambled off along the shoulder of the highway, realising then that, despite his first impressions, he hadn't smelt any alcohol on his breath at all. Then Solotki put his car into gear and pulled out into the road. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. By 4pm, Constable Slotkey was back at his desk at the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Detachment Office when he was informed that a man was waiting for him outside in the car park. It was Mikhailak wanting to know where the nearest hospital was. Mikhailak once again refused a lift to get there, claiming he didn't want to put the officer in any danger and promptly headed off to find the nearest bus station. Later that night, Mikhailak received treatment for thermal burns at the Misericordia Hospital in Winnipeg, where he lived. When he finally arrived home, Mikhailak contacted the Winnipeg Tribune newspaper and told them about his incredible story. Though no one was on hand that night, reporter Heather Chisvin was sent round to his home on Lindsay Street the following night to get the details. On arrival, she was greeted by Stefan's wife, Maria, and led into the living room, where she found a seemingly weak and pale Stefan convalescing on the sofa. Mikhailak claimed to have been vomiting constantly, ever since coming into contact with the unknown craft and had not been able to keep any food down, not even bread or milk. He was also plagued by terrible headaches 
and a bizarre taste that he couldn't seem to shake from his mouth, like burning electrical wire. Heather looked to Maria, who confirmed it was all true. The deep concern for her husband etched clearly on her face. The couple's equally worried children had also gathered to join them. 19-year-old Mark and 9-year-old Stan. A third child, Eva, was away from home at the time. Heather flipped open her notebook and asked Stefan to tell her everything. Stefan Mikalak was born in Poland in 1916 and had survived the Second World War, having first fought in the Polish army, then joined the Polish resistance when his country fell under the occupation of Adolf Hitler's Germany. After five years under German occupation, Despite the war being over, Poland soon found itself effectively occupied by Stalin's dictatorial Soviet Union, who in 1945 helped establish a Polish communist government. The following year, Stefan and Maria were married. Two years later, their family of two had become four with the birth of a daughter and son. But as the communist government, with the support of the Soviet Union, began a violent crackdown on anyone who opposed the new regime. Mikhailak grew increasingly worried for his and his family's future. After fleeing to Germany alone, he then emigrated to Canada in the hope of bringing his family with him. It wouldn't be until a further ten years, however, before the Mikhailaks could be finally reunited. By 1967, Stefan worked as an industrial mechanic for the Winnipeg branch of the Inland Cement Company. Having become enamoured with the great outdoors since moving to Canada, he developed a passion for geology and the art of prospecting, all of which led him to be at Falcon Lake on the evening of Friday 19th of May, where he stayed the night in a hotel before making his way to a small claim he'd been working about half a mile west and two miles north of the lake the following morning. The claim was located in a large, open patch of scrub on the edge of a small body of water, surrounded by birch and pine. That morning, when he arrived there, sometime around 8am, he startled a flock of geese as he approached. Worried they might hassle him, Mikhailak was relieved when they quickly calmed down and seemed to no longer notice him. Mikhailak then promptly got to work, measuring out a large quartz vein he'd discovered near the spot, before he took out his hammer and began to chip away at it. After a few good hours' work, Stefan had just taken a break when he was startled by pained screeches coming from the geese, who were flapping and splashing about on the water. Turning to see what all the commotion was about, Mikhailak spotted a strange, fuzzy red light far off in the distance above them, in a south-southwesterly direction. Then he spotted a second one just behind it, that seemed to be following the same path. As the lights came closer, he realised with some surprise that they were in fact aircraft of some kind, shaped like saucers, that appeared to be spinning at high speed. Believing the aircraft were simply recent additions to the Canadian Air Force, 
Mikalak watched them with a calm sense of intrigue as they drew closer and closer until one of them dropped down and landed about 30 feet away while the other stayed hovering in the sky. With the craft having landed, as Mikalak continued to explain, its rotation velocity began to decrease and with it, so too did the intensity of its red glow. Like a hot coal getting cooler, it dimmed steadily until, with the glow gone completely, the craft was revealed to be made from some kind of metallic material that was a light brass in colour. After apparently watching it do nothing for ten minutes, Mikalak then claimed a hatch opened up on the side of it, through which he was able to see a bright, multicoloured column of light shining out from inside, surrounded by ribbed walls. It was then that he heard the voices. They were quiet at first, but grew steadily louder, like a group of men excitedly discussing something he thought. Further attempts to communicate in numerous languages also fell flat, then the hatch simply closed up again, and the device started to spin once more. In his confusion, Mikalak claimed he couldn't help but approach the craft to try and get a better sense of what it was. When he put his gloved hand to the surface, it burnt the tips of the fingers. Then seconds later, he was struck by an almighty burst of hot air. The next thing he knew, he was on the floor, with his shirt on fire and in tatters, lying on the ground before him. Hurrying to his feet to stomp out the flames, lest they spread to the forest, he could only watch on with what was now utter disbelief, as the craft steadily lifted back into the air, then shot off five times faster than any jet he'd ever seen, and alongside the other one, disappeared into the clouds. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online with a broad range of expertise that may not be locally available in many areas. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional online therapy and financial aid is also available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today and they have a special offer for unexplained listeners. Get 10% off your first month. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero. On Monday, May 22nd, Heather Chisvin's article appeared in the Winnipeg Tribune under the headline, I was burned by UFO. The following day, with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police keen to hear more, Corporal C.J. Davis and Constable Zacharias visited McCarlack at his home. They found him sitting on the sofa, clearly in some distress, looking frail and weak, 
having apparently lost 13 pounds in the last three days. After being questioned on the matter, Stefan assured the incredulous officers that everything they read in the article was correct and showed them the burns on his stomach, which were still prominent, to prove it. But when they asked if he would lead them to the apparent landing site to investigate further, he seemed suddenly reticent, claiming that he was still too ill to do anything so strenuous. And when they returned the following day, with maps and bird's-eye photographs of the region, he struggled to pinpoint exactly where the alleged incident occurred. Then Davis asked Mikhailak if he'd been drinking at all that day, or the night before, thinking back to the report he'd read of Constable Gary Solotki's first engagement with him back on the Saturday afternoon. But Mikhailak insisted he'd been sober throughout the weekend. Later that day, an RCMP officer paid a visit to the Falcon Lake Hotel where Mikhailak had stayed on the Friday night. The manager remembered the man well, especially the fact that he'd served him at least five bottles of beer before he retired for bed around 11pm. A hotel housekeeper, however, attested that she'd found no evidence that Mikhailak had continued drinking in his room. On May 30th, with the Canadian Air Force having joined the RCMP in taking an interest in the story, squadron leader Paul Biskey joined Corporal Davis on an aerial search of Whiteshell Provincial Park in the hope of finding the apparent landing site. Without Mikhailak, however, the search proved fruitless. On June 1st, Mikhailak declared he was finally well enough to lead the RCMP and Canadian Air Force to the landing site. However, when they finally made it into the brush together, Mikhailak proved a lacklustre guide, apparently unsure exactly of where he'd been. He claimed then that he'd simply followed a quartz vein and had just gone wherever it took him without paying too much attention to his surroundings. At 10pm, after covering four square miles of territory, the search was abandoned. Davis told McCarlack to get in touch if he ever planned to go looking for the site again. About the same time, McCarlack was contacted by Dr. Roy Craig, the major field investigator for the University of Colorado's UFO project, which was funded by the US Air Force to investigate unidentified aerial phenomena. Craig had been impressed with McCarlack's story and also made efforts to find the landing site with him, but again, McCarlack struggled to find it. Growing tired of Stefan's apparent prevaricating and with much of his story not adding up, squadron leader Biskey travelled alone to Falcon Beach to investigate a nearby microwave tower which had been suggested as the real source of McCarlack's burns. Biskey scaled up the strange concrete tower with its array of alien-looking antennas and dishes perched high up to the north of the lake and gazed out at the silent surrounding forest. He found no evidence to suggest that Mikhailak had been there. Then, on June 26th, Biskey received a call from Stefan. He'd finally found the landing site. As he explained to the squadron leader, He'd gone out the day before with a man named Gerald Hart 
who had convinced him to try and find the location again. Hart, who had a long-running fascination with UFOs, ran an electronics store in Winnipeg and was apparently in the process of developing a device that could detect interstellar vehicles. As McCarlack went on to explain, he and Hart were now partners in this venture, whatever it was, but more importantly, they'd found evidence of the landing. Annoyed by this new turn of events, Bisky suggested to Corporal Davis that they go round to McCarlack's house to take a look at this apparent evidence for themselves. With Davis otherwise engaged, a Corporal Anderson was sent instead. When the officials arrived, McCarlack was defensive and claimed not to remember Davis's instruction to inform him if he ever planned to look for the site again. Seeing Bisky's obvious frustration with it all, Mikhailak suggested that he follow him downstairs to the cellar. Once there, Stefan rummaged about at a work desk, then handed the squadron leader two clear plastic bags, in one of which was the tattered remains of the shirt he claimed to be wearing on the day of the event, while the other contained samples of soil and moss that he claimed to have gathered from the scene. He'd also recovered his steel measuring tape too. He handed it all over to Bisky, who agreed to have it tested for him for any sign of residual radiation. Then Bisky pressed him again on where they could find the landing site and asked how Mikhailak had found it in the end. Then Mikhailak confessed. He'd known where it was all along, but had not wanted to tell anyone because he believed the site to be rich in nickel and wanted his claim on the land to be made official before he went public with its precise location. He'd only shown Gerald Hart where it was after receiving assurances that his interest was strictly to do with UFOs. Three weeks later, on July 18th, the soil sample, steel tape and pieces of burned clothing were delivered to the RCMP Crime Detection Lab in Ottawa. A week later, Corporal Davis received a telex message from the Mounted Police Commissioner. It read, UFO reported by Stefan Mikhailak. Laboratory tests here indicate earth samples taken from scene highly radioactive. A gamma-ray spectral analysis of the three samples revealed activity levels of up to approximately 0.5 curries of radium-226 or its equivalent. Radiation Protection Division of Department of Health and Welfare concerned that others may be exposed if travel in area not restricted. It was then recommended by the Department of Health and Welfare that the area be closed off immediately to avoid anyone else being exposed to the radiation, with Department Official Stuart Hunt being dispatched to make a thorough investigation. With Hunt convinced that McCarlick was simply making the whole thing up, he travelled first to a well-known nuclear waste disposal site in East Braintree, located about 25 miles west of Falcon Beach, believing McCarlick's soil samples had in fact come from there. But Hunt found no evidence to suggest that McCarlick had been anywhere near the disposal site. 
with it becoming increasingly likely that there was a genuine radioactive hazard out in the wilderness, it became imperative for Mikarlak to reveal its location. Squadron leader Biskey and Corporal Davis then drove Hunt to Mikarlak's home, along with another UFO enthusiast named Barry Thompson, who'd also been out to see the site. Hunt made it clear, in no uncertain terms, that he had to investigate the area, and Mikarlak finally relented. After confiscating the rest of the soil from Mikarlak's home, Hunt made a check of the property, relieved to find no other radioactive material inside it. Then, on the morning of July 28th, Mikarlak was driven out to Falcon Lake, where he met up with Hunt, Biskey and Davis, along with a number of other RCMP and Air Force officials. With Mikarlak leading the way, together they stepped through the tree line to the north of Trans-Canada Highway 1. After walking a good few hours, Mikarlak brought them to a stop about two miles north of the highway when they emerged into a clearing alongside a small body of water. Then he pointed to a small patch of Precambrian rock. There, he said, that's where it came down. The location was barely a hundred feet from where Davis had sat to take a break on the other side of a narrow ravine, way back in May when they'd first tried to find it, but it had been obscured by trees. Claim markers were dotted all over the place, with McCarlick's name and details on them. As Davis stood, looking at the rocky floor by the water, cutting through the moss and other vegetation that clung to the rock, the outline of a strange large circle could clearly be seen, about 15 feet in diameter, which according to McCarlack, had been made by the craft. As Davis snapped away with his camera, taking pictures of the scene, McCarlack took them through the events of that peculiar morning in May, pointing to an opening in the trees, about 20 degrees north by northeast from the apparent landing spot. McCarlack explained that that was the route the craft had taken when it arrived and where it had travelled back to when it shot off. But didn't you say it came from that way? asked Biskey pointing to the sky in a south-by-southwesterly direction, as McCarlack had first told investigators. Stefan screwed up his face as he apparently tried to recollect what he'd said before, then turned back to face north-northeast. Perhaps I was just confused, he said. Meanwhile, Stuart Hunt set about taking further samples of moss and soil, carving pieces of it out from between the cracks of the rock. A few days later, Hunt delivered his findings. The undersigned does not intend to prove one way or the other whether a UFO had been sighted, as there are still too many unknowns. There are, however, two conclusions that are of interest to this division. A. Radioactive contamination of the rock and lichens was found at the alleged UFO landing site. The origins of this contamination has yet to be determined. B. The radiation levels measured were not high enough to create radiation hazard to the general public. It was a relief to all concerned 
that the location was no longer dangerously radioactive, if it ever had been before. Not least of all for McCarlack, who was now free to continue prospecting on it. As for determining what had happened exactly, everyone remained at a loss. Finding that the soil from the apparent landing site was contaminated with radium-266, Department of Health and Welfare official Stuart Hunt suggested that Mikalek might have used some kind of luminous paint, which often utilised the substance, in order to stage a hoax, a product that was often used by the Inland Cement Company, who Mikalak worked for. In August 1967, Corporal Davis contacted McCarlack's superior at the company, Mr. R. West, who confirmed, however, that none of their paints contained radium. In 2019, McCarlack's son, Stan McCarlack, along with author Chris Rutkowski, published the book, When They Appeared, Falcon Lake 1967, the inside story of a close encounter, detailing what they say is the most comprehensive retelling of the story. In it, they claim that in 1968, Stefan McCarlack, apparently still suffering from his alleged brush with the UFO, with headaches and blackouts, not to mention the constant disappearance and reappearance of those strange burn marks, took a trip out to the supposed landing site. There, he found a number of strange pieces of silver, covered in a peculiar black substance that was later apparently found to be a radioactive uranium ore embedded in the cracks underneath where the alleged UFO was said to have landed. To this day, the Canadian Department of National Defence identifies the Falcon Lake incident as unsolved. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.com.